Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 7 Sage LSAT Podcast. I'm Henry Ewing, and I'm joined with my co-host, Asta Sinha. We're going to be starting off a new branch of this podcast, where we're going to be breaking down a couple of different types of LR questions or logical reasoning questions, walking you through how we would approach them, what our strategy is, and then we'll actually go over a question together. We'll solve it together on this podcast. We'll learn together. We'll talk about how I approach it, how Henry approaches it, and how you can approach it. Are you excited, Henry? Oh, I'm I'm thrilled. There's nothing I like more than talking about LR on this test. <laughs> is that your favorite section? It is my favorite section. It's probably the section I, I work with the most, too, that I end up tutoring the most. That's fair. It's a good section, though. It's a good section. It's When I think of the LSAT, I think of LR. Really? When I think of the LSAT, I think of logic games, like, for sure. Like, that, to me, is the most LSAT-y thing ever. Well, what are we talking about today? What question type are we doing? We are talking about necessary assumption questions. What is a necessary assumption question? Like, at its most basic level, how would you describe it to someone? Right, so we've talked about sufficient assumption questions, and... Sufficient assumption questions are all about making the argument work, right? So in a sufficient assumption question, you're going to get an argument. The argument is going to be incomplete. And then the right answer choice is going to be such that if you were to take the answer choice and insert it into the question or into the stimulus, the argument's magically going to work, right? The, the argument's going to be valid. In a necessary assumption, it, it's similar but different, right? A necessary assumption question, it's something that the argument needs but won't necessarily make the argument whole, right? So if the argument does work, that you need to have the necessary assumption. When we were talking about this earlier, you give a really good visual of like columns of the house. Could you walk us through that? Yeah, right. So if you think of a argument as a house, right? And, and if the house is standing, it's good. It's good. The argument's good. Well, if the house is standing, it's, it's resting on these columns. And I want to ask you like, hey, which of these columns are required or needed for the house to stand? One way we could test that is just by taking away the columns. And if we take away a column and the entire house falls down, then we realize like, oh, maybe we needed that column. Maybe it wasn't so good to take away, right? Like maybe that was something we needed, but it's not sufficient to keep the house up, right? If that was the only column in the house, maybe that we would have no house. And so when we're looking at necessary assumption questions, the idea you want to think of is you're testing to see, is this answer choice required or needed by the argument? And the way we check that is by negation. We say that the answer choice is not the case. That's us taking the column away from the house. And if we negate an answer choice and the argument falls apart, i.e. the house falls down, that means that that answer choice was necessary. And we can pick it and we can move. Totally agree. I think the easiest way for me to explain necessary assumption questions to my students, at least, is you're looking for an answer choice that has to be true for the argument to work. And I think when we're learning about necessary assumption questions, it's easy to get caught up on, I guess, diagramming everything and perfectly mapping it all out and understanding every little thing about the argument. And yes, that's helpful to start off with. But when you get into the test, you don't have five minutes to do each question. You have to kind of go with the bird's eye view, look at the argument as a whole, and just almost common sense your way through some of the easier necessary assumption questions, right? Does this have to be true for my argument to work? That is the question I'm asking myself over and over and over again as I'm doing necessary assumption questions, especially the ones that are earlier in the section. Those tend to be a little bit easier. The arguments tend to be a little bit simpler. And so if you're diagramming and mapping out and heavily analyzing every single necessary assumption question you're working through, 
I challenge you to take a step back and just little old Joe on the sidewalk, right? What would he have to say about this question? Oh, you could probably common sense your way through it, right? Just by looking at it and asking yourself, does this have to be true for the argument to work? Right. I think you hit the nail on the head by saying a lot of these you can common sense your way through. And it's usually a lot easier after you do the negation. After you do the negation, you'll negate the answer choice. You'll read them like, oh, of course, this has to be the case, right? Of course, this answer is necessary. Because when I negate it, it just so obviously goes against the argument. It so obviously hurts the structure and hurts the reasoning of the argument. Henry, when you say negate an answer choice, what do you mean by that? Right. So when you're negating, you're saying something is not the case. Right. So when I negate an answer choice, I say, you know, let's say I negate the claim. You can go to the LSAT or you you take the LSAT. You take the LSAT. If I negate that, it's not the case you take the LSAT. Right. So it is not the case that you take the LSAT. Why is that interesting for us? Well, like, let's say I have an argument that, you know, you, Asta, or I am going to get a 180 on the LSAT. I want to think like, well, what's necessary for me to get there? Right. Well, one of the things that's necessary for me to get a 180 on the LSAT is I actually take the test. I actually have to take the test. Now, is that sufficient? No, of course not, right? Because you can take the test and not get a 180. You can get any score. I mean, that frequently happens, right? Take the test, you don't get a 180. But it's necessary that I take the test. Now, I think that's common sense for most people, but let's try this negation thing. Let's try this out. So if I negate the idea that I can take the LSAT, right? So it is not the case I can take the LSAT. I can't take the LSAT. Well, if I can't take the LSAT, there's no way I'm getting a 180. So the argument gets ruined. That's the approach you would take. You would first start off by saying something is not the case. It is not the case. Answer choice. And if the house crumbles, the argument crumbles, you're in a good position. That means you pick the answer and you move on. Necessary assumption questions are nice because it's one of the few LR, I don't want to say few LR questions, but it's probably one of the first LR questions you can get to, to the point of being like 100% certain that an answer choice is right, 100% of the time. I feel like weakening questions, and you can do that with sufficient assumption too, but some of these other question types, you can be very certain, but it's hard to like, you don't have a tool to double check it, if that makes sense, right? So with the necessary assumption, it's always such a prime candidate for someone who starts taking this test. Negation such a good tool for them because they can just be certain that, you know what, I know this answer choice, right? I know that this question is right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great point. Let's actually test that out. Let's see how this looks on an actual LSAT question. So Henry, let's take a look at a question from the June 2007 test, section three, question 11. Old faithful, June 2007. Do you remember taking this test? Yeah, I do. It was my diagnostic. It was most people's diagnostics, I feel like. If you take a diagnostic on Seven Sage and a couple of other platforms as well, I think they use this June 2007 as like the first test that you're supposed to take. So I have very fond memories of taking this test. And by fond, I mean, good God, that was yeah. miserable. If by fond, <laughs> you mean the exact opposite of fond. Yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> that's what I mean. It was It was rough, to say the least. I went into it with a really big ego. And I think a lot of people do, especially when you're like in college and you're like, oh, I do well in my classes. How hard could the LSAT be? Oh, God, it was hard. It was really hard. But here we are. We've gotten past it. We've gotten better. It is kind of nice to look back at the test now and looking back at this specific test. And I kind of know what I'm doing at this point. Kind of. Kind of. We'll find out. Let's see. Yeah, let's see. (laughs) All right, let's work through this argument together. So looking at the question stem first, it says the argument depends on assuming that blank. 
right? Then the answer choices. Yeah, so this depends word, necessary, like requires. So the argument requires that you assume something, right? So that's how I would identify this as necessary. So let's take a look at the first sentence. So feathers recently taken from seabirds, stuffed and preserved in the 1880s, have been found to contain only half as much mercury as feathers recently taken from living birds of the same species. What are you kind of gathering from that, Henry? Right. So it seems like there's a discrepancy here, right? So we have feathers from seabirds from way back in the day, 1880s, and we're we're comparing the mercury in those feathers to mercury taken from feathers of seabirds today. And apparently the mercury in the old seabird feathers is is there's a lot less of it, right? It's half as much. So I'm I'm looking at that and I'm thinking like, okay, so I, I know this. Now, what does this have to do with the argument? I'm not so sure at this point, but it's always I think it's always good to take a quick stop and do a quick paraphrase, right? So like old seabird feathers, half as much mercury as new seabird feathers. Exactly. Absolutely. And one thing I kind of want to stress about, you're saying old seabird feathers and new seabird feathers. There's something else that I'm picking up on, at least, that's kind of different between those two groups. The old seabirds are stuffed and preserved. They're dead. Like they're they're literally like, what's the word? Taxidermy, right? Like they are old dead seabirds. And then they're comparing them to seabirds today that are living. We're comparing apples to oranges here. Like I have no reason to believe that those two things are even comparable. So those are kind of the big alarms that are ringing in my head as I read the first sentence here. Right. Yeah. And I think that's exactly spot on. Right. So we're comparing these two things and they might be comparable. But as Asa's noting, and as you know, there are some serious differences between the two. I mean, also these older seabird feathers, they've been around for a long time. At this point, though, we don't really know what they're using this for, right? Like what they're using this for. So I feel like it would be hard to draw any. I mean, this could be meaningful. It might not be. But it's good to be picking up on these differences before you even move forward and noticing that like, hey, okay, so yeah, we're comparing feathers, but these feathers... They're very different in multiple respects. Yeah. Let's let's see what else the argument has to say. So it says, since mercury that accumulates in a seabird's feathers as the feathers grow is derived from fish eaten by the bird. Okay, I'm going to take a second there and pause, me personally. What did I just learn here? I just learned how these feathers get mercury in the first place. Mercury that accumulates in the feathers as the feathers grow comes from fish eaten by the bird. I just have to take that as truth, right? Like the only way that these feathers are getting pumped with mercury is because they're eating fish, right? The birds are eating fish. The rest of it goes on to say, these results indicate that mercury levels in saltwater fish are higher now than they were 100 years ago. So that's my conclusion, right? That last little part there, that the results indicate mercury levels in saltwater fish are higher now than they were 100 years ago. What proof do they have for that? Well, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. We learned that the seabirds that were stuffed and preserved from like 200 years ago have half as much mercury as living birds do now. And the only way that birds are getting mercury is by eating fish. Okay, so if they have more mercury now, I guess it kind of makes sense. That means that these fish have more mercury levels now than they used to. Right. What do you kind of think about that? I agree. It doesn't make no sense. They're drawing a conclusion about the mercury levels of saltwater fish, right? And they want to say that the mercury levels in the past were much lower than they are currently in saltwater fish. Now, the, they're not testing saltwater fish to do that, right? Instead, they're looking at seabirds and determining that, okay, seabirds in the past, their feathers have a lot less mercury. The mercury in the feathers come from the fish. And so the feathers from the past have a lot less mercury versus the feathers now. And so their conclusion is that because that's the case, right? Oh, the fish have higher mercury today than they used to. That's 
what the argument wants you to think, right? And that's the logic of the argument. That that's the that's the structure of the argument. And like it's again, like we said, like this argument doesn't make no sense, but there are a couple of jumps that we're making here. And that's why this is a necessary assumption question. There are a couple of assumptions we have to make for any of this to make any sense. I'm personally, right, before I go into the answer choices, what I'm thinking about is what we kind of talked about earlier about comparing these old dead birds to current alive birds. I don't know if those two groups are comparable. And if they're not, I have to assume that they are. In order for me to get to this conclusion, I have to assume that those two groups are similar and that we are allowed to compare them without there being any issues. So what I'm going to guess as far as the right answer goes is something harping on the fact that I have to assume those two groups are comparable in order for me to get to my conclusion. What are you kind of thinking? I agree. If we look at this conclusion as a hypothesis, they're hypothesizing that the saltwater fish today have a lot more mercury than they used to in the past. And and what they're using is the seabird feathers to determine that. Well, one thing you'd want to make sure is that the seabird feathers are comparable in every single way, except for the mercury. So you want to make sure that the groups that you're testing, these seabirds in their feathers, are as similar to each other as possible to rule out alternative causes. So you're looking at that and you think, okay, are these feathers the same? And what you're saying is well not really because one group we're taking them we're taking the feathers from live birds and in the other group we're taking them from these stuffed birds that are you know one a lot older i don't i'm looking at this and what i think is like i don't know maybe mercury degrades over time they had you know just as much mercury in the past and then after 140 years is that is that right 140 years you know half of it degraded maybe even more and so you're looking at that and you think oh that's a possibility or and that's what would jump out to me immediately it's like is the the time here and maybe that's right maybe that's wrong or uh, wrong answer what's interesting here is we both kind of are going into the answer choices with two different like guesses about what the right answer is going to look like and i think that's good right there are a million different assumptions that we could sit here and come up with you don't need to spend you know when you're taking the test i don't want you to spend two minutes before you read the answer choices thinking about what the right answer could look like however you should have some sort of an idea going into the answer choices right what's the kind of thing i'm looking for what direction does this argument go and what are some assumptions that i can brainstorm so that when you're reading the answer choices you're not going in blind we kind of talked about this when we did our episode i think it was last week about rc and kind of predicting answer choices for rc you never want to go into the answer choices completely blind so I think even though we have different guesses about what this assumption is going to be, I think we're in a really good place going into the answer choices now. Yeah. And importantly, the fundamental or the theory behind both of our different guesses is the same. It's that noticing that birds today and birds of the past, they might not be birds of a feather. No, that was bad. That was, that, that was bad. No, that was bad. <laughs> that was that bad, was... right? But, but the I... <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea is they might not be the same, right? The idea is that the, these these feathers might not be the same. This might not be the best experiment. So let's let's move into some of these answer choices and let's see if any of these answer choices one matches what we discussed, or and then two we can try negating it and see if the argument still works. All right, let's start with answer choice A then. So A says the proportion of a seabird's diet consisting of fish was not as high on average in the 1880s as it is today. My gut reaction to this answer choice is that I don't care. But what's your kind of initial first reaction to hearing that the proportion of the diets that were fish used to be lower than it is today? Right. So when, when I see this and we're looking at this, answer choice A more or less says that like, hey, the, the seabird's diet of the past, it's different than how it was today. 
to me, that looks problematic for the argument, right? Because we can imagine a world where, okay, maybe the fish, the mercury levels have been the same in the fish no matter what. But today, seabirds eat a lot more fish. They eat a lot more fish. And that's why they have more mercury. It's not that the, the fish themselves have more mercury. It's that the seabirds today, they just eat a bunch more mercury. And, and that's what A gets at. But that would be problematic for the argument, right? That wouldn't be a good thing for the argument. So when we're looking for an answer choice that says the argument depends on assuming that A, we want to make sure that our answer choice is not a problem for the argument, right? <laughs> you know, the argument's not going to depend on something that's bad for it. And A looks bad. If we change the diet of the seabird today so they eat a bunch more fish, then we can think of an alternative explanation for the fact that the seabirds have a lot more mercury in their feathers. It's because they eat more fish, not because the fish have higher mercury. And I think it's important right now to remember, right, what is the conclusion of the argument? The conclusion is that these results indicate that mercury levels in saltwater fish are higher now than they were 100 years ago. That's the conclusion. We're dealing with this idea that these fish have more mercury in them. So yeah, spot on, Henry. Answer choice A, if anything, weakens the argument. And that's really funny. Like, yeah, obviously something that weakens the argument isn't going to be a necessary assumption, right? Those two things don't necessarily go together. Yeah, they just don't. Your argument doesn't need something that's bad for it. Absolutely. All right, let's take a look at B. So B says, the amount of mercury in a saltwater fish depends on the amount of pollution in the ocean habitat of the fish. So here's the thing. In answer choice B, we are learning about how the fish get mercury. I don't care. My hypothesis, right, this argument is not trying to figure out why the fish get mercury, just that they have higher levels of mercury. I'm not looking for an explanation to that fact. That doesn't matter. So answer choice B is just giving us a reason why fish would have mercury in the first place. I quite honestly don't care. What I care about is how that mercury is getting into seabirds and whether or not it matters if the seabird's dead or not. So B is just kind of adding this third element of how the fish get mercury that doesn't mean anything for this argument. Because think about it this way. Like, what if that wasn't true? What if the amount of mercury in a saltwater fish does not depend on the amount of pollution and instead depends on, I don't know, how many Starbucks orders come in in the morning? That's what determines what a fish's mercury level is. How does that matter for the argument? It doesn't matter even a little bit. Yeah, it's entirely unclear. It, like what you said, like if the amount of mercury in a saltwater fish does not depend on the amount of pollution, okay. That seems fine for the argument, if anything. When you negate B, say it's not the case that the amount of mercury in a saltwater fish depends on the amount of pollution in the ocean habitat. And like, okay, that's fine, right? So sure, it doesn't depend on pollution. Does that hurt the argument? Does that make this analysis of seabird feathers bad? The answer is no. Okay, very good. Let's look at C. Mercury derived from fish is essential for the normal growth of a seabird's feather. Okay, and that was a lot of attitude, but like I <laughs> no, I, I I agree, right? I agree. And that's the classic, you know, like oh, seven sage JY, he gives attitude to the wrong answer. But some sometimes it's all there is to do is to give a little bit of attitude here, right? Yeah, I don't like, have anything else to say. Like, what is this answer choice saying? That the mercury is good for the feathers? Okay, great. How does that help me prove whether or not the mercury levels in fish are higher now than they used to be. That's my conclusion. Never lose sight of the conclusion in a question like this. And answer choice C simply doesn't do anything for the argument, good or bad. Yeah, and, and even if it wasn't essential for the normal growth of the seabird's feathers, ultimately, the mercury is getting into the seabird's feathers. So that's what they say in the premises, right? That the mercury in the seabird feathers, it comes from the fish. Whether or not that's an important part of the building or growing process of seabird's feathers doesn't really matter because ultimately the mercury is getting there some way or another. 
Did you say the building process of the feathers? I, I don't know. I was I, I was looking for growing, and I just How did you I, build I, I a feather. I, I don't. I couldn't get there on time, right? So I I just went with my gut, which was building. I you know see the build. Come on. I'm just imagining someone with like a hammer, like attacking a bird to like build a feather. Like <laughs> right, like to build a feather. Yeah. No. <laughs> so let's go ahead and move on to answer choice D. So the stuffed seabirds whose feathers were tested for mercury were not fully grown couple of things wrong here. The first thing that I'm thinking about is, if anything, this makes the argument worse, kind of like answer choice A. Because what they're trying to say is that the first group, those old 1880s stuffed and preserved seabirds, they were babies. And we're comparing them to living birds today. So if those were babies, then they probably... Maybe that's an explanation for why they had less mercury than the samples that we took now, right? Because they barely had enough time to eat enough fish to get a bunch of mercury. Just like with answer choice A, there's no way that an answer choice that is bad for the argument is going to be necessary for the argument. Yeah, exactly. So the problem with D is it suggests an alternative explanation here. It's not the fact that the reason the 1880s birds have very little mercury in them, it's not because there was less mercury in the fish. But like you said, you know, these were babies who were cold and stolen away, right? Let's move on to answer choice E. So the last one standing, hopefully it looks good. The process used to preserve birds in the 1880s did not substantially decrease the amount of mercury in the bird's feathers. So what are your thoughts on this one, Henry? Yeah, so this looks pretty juicy. Whereas A and D suggested that the birds of old and the birds of today were not the same, E is trying to make them more the same. Why? Why does E make them more the same? Well, for example, let's just negate this. So we have did not substantially decrease. So what we can do with negating this, we just take out the not. Like not, not, it's like taking a double negative. It becomes a positive. And so we could read this as the process used to preserve the birds in the 1880s did substantially decrease the amount of mercury in the bird feathers. And that is going to destroy the argument, right? Completely harms the argument. Because if that is the case, or one of the reasons why these 1880s stuffed birds have so little mercury is because the process to preserve them destroyed it. And which would suggest that it's not that the fish of old, right, the fish in the past, it's not like they had any less mercury. The reason we don't have mercury in these feathers is because the preservation process destroyed them or destroyed the mercury. And so that completely ruins the argument. Now, we negated E, right? Importantly, we negated E and it ruined the argument. We took the column away, the argument fell down. So that suggests that E is necessary, right? E is necessary for this argument to be true. And that's the right answer. Look at that. Just like that. In summary, right, we read the argument. We found, you know, these two groups that didn't necessarily seem to line up and they were red flags, right? Going into the answer choices, we knew that, okay, the bird, what did you call them? The birds of the past, the birds of the new, right? Whatever. We knew that there was a distinction between those two. We went through each answer choice. We asked ourselves, does this have to be true for the argument to work? We found a couple answer choices that instead of being necessary for the argument, actually hurt the argument. We were able to get rid of those pretty quickly. And we landed on one that was in fact necessary that wrecked the argument if we took it away. And that's how you do a necessary assumption question. Any closing notes? There's a lot of different approaches to negating, right? Like how do you negate increasing or decreasing? But one thing I would recommend is just, just stick, it is not the case in front of any answer choice. That's the fundamental of negating. Just stick, it is not the case. Yeah, but that's it. We'll see you guys soon. See you soon. For more LSAT study tips, visit sevensage.com.